ahead if you didn't notice. Um, you weren't paying attention, uh, but there's a large bus in our in our parking lot, uh, and uh, that is the Cascade Bloodmobile, and and we have it here. Um, some of you have signed up to give blood, and and if you did, make sure you make your appointment. If you didn't, and you'd still like to give blood after service, just check, and and there may be openings for you to be able to do that um, uh, following the service. And the reason we do that, you know, we talk about good news, and we believe the good news is not only for uh, someday that where we we will join with uh, God for eternity. Uh, we we believe that it is about uh, the life that He's given us today and the hope that He's given us today. And we believe the good news touches not only the spirit but it touches the tangible. And so one of the ways that we can uh, love our community and and um, and help our community is by doing things that are tangible expressions of life and love. And so giving blood, I mean, that's one of those ways. And so it, there's people who, who, who literally would be saved their life uh, because of that blood. And so if, if you have the ability to do that and you, uh, you can, uh, thank you for doing that. Um, I, uh, I, I, I want to continue this morning our, our series on, um, on uh, the book of Mark. That's why we have this that says the book of Mark. And this particular uh, section that we're talking about is when the odds are against us. And um, we began talking last week uh, about, uh, I talked about the healing of the paralytic, the man who was lowered down through the roof of, of the house. And Jesus uh, saw him and said to the, the young man, son, your sins are forgiven, and then went on to heal him. And in the midst of this, there's this big conflict with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Because they were saying, oh, who is Jesus? Who does he think he is to, to give him the right to say that his sins, to forgive sins? But, but one of the things that I said last week as we're talking about hope and as we're talking about, you know, pushing through and hoping even when the odds are against us, one of the things that I said, one of the points that I made last week was that there are some people, you know, there are barriers to hope. There are things that are barriers to our hope. And, and one of those barriers, unfortunately, sometimes is people. That people can sometimes be hope killers. There are some people who can just be just what, what one of my kids calls negative Nancys. You know, they just, they just you, you put out an idea or you put out a, 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 a thought and they're just like, ah, it'll never work. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, and, and while we should have those people as, you know, we should love those people, encourage those people, we shouldn't make those people our advisors. Because we're believers, right? So, so, um, so I had this, you know, this, this, that was a great point last week that I made. I mean, I was nailing it. And uh, and then last, last Sunday afternoon, I was haunted by my very own words. And and here's why. Which frankly happens every Sunday, but um, because because these messages uh, that I share, I would love to tell you that when I stand up here and share a message out of God's Word, that I pretty much got it wired. Um, but the reality is that what's usually happening is God is dealing with that in my own life. And you just kind of, I just kind of let you in on it. And, um, and so, you know, I, I was thinking about that. You know, people are hope killers last Sunday afternoon, and here's why. My son, uh, my, my middle son, John, attends University of Washington. And he lives in McMahon Hall, and he lives on the 11th floor. And he lives in a, in a cluster, what's called a cluster. So what a cluster is, is it's a, 
It's a confined area that has four dorm rooms, and then they share a common area. So he has a roommate, but then there's there's three other rooms, and he he was he's really excited about this room because they all knew each other and they all joined this cluster together, and so they have this common area. And in their common area, he was very proud of it because one of his cluster mates brought these leather couches. So they have these leather couches. They're on the 11th floor. They have this full view of the of, of Lake Washington. It's beautiful. You know, they have a television, they have a, they have a projector, you know, they have all their gaming systems set up. And I'm like, isn't this college? I mean, you know, it's just it's a cool place. He brought me up there and he showed it to us and, and it, was, it was pretty cool. Unfortunately, this semester, that cluster mate that brought the couches moved out. And so, so now they have no furniture, right? And uh, so, so they're talking about what are they going to do for furniture. And of course, we said, you know, you could probably check on Craigslist or go to Goodwill or somebody somewhere you can find a pretty inexpensive or somebody giving it away. You know, it might not be leather couches, but it'll be something to sit on. Well, well, John had this brilliant idea. Um, he, he said, let's do bean bags. Okay, it's not exactly leather couches, but it, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's functional. He said, dad, no, you don't understand. He said, we're going to have a 10 foot long beanbag sofa. I said, where are you going to get a 10 feet long beanbag? He showed me a picture of it. It was pretty cool. I said, where are you going to get a 10 foot long beanbag sofa? He said, I'm going to make it. (laughs) I'm like, I think you're going to make it. He said, I'm going to make it. I said, how are you going to make it? He said, I'm just going to make it. I'm going to get the stuff. He said, I found this place on the East Coast that has free shipping. They'll ship the beans out to me. So he ordered 70 pounds of bean ba- beans. They're being shipped to the door. I mean, can you imagine these, uh, these boxes that come to the front desk? Anyway, um, so he ordered 70 pounds of these beans. And I'm like, okay, you know, you, know, you can get couches cheaper. You can just, let's just go to the Goodwill and get some couches. Dad, that's not nearly as cool as what this is going to be. Okay, whatever. So, so last night, last weekend he comes home, and Saturday night we find ourselves at Joanne Fabrics. And, uh, and you know, family outing on Saturday night to Joanne Fabrics. And uh, we buy 15 yards of black corduroy, because that's what he's going to make it out of. And he's, he's got online, he's got the whole pattern. And, and the way I said, well, you can't, you know, it's not going to hold together with duct tape. You know, you can't, you can't just, you know... You're going to have to sew it. He says, I know. And I said, bud, you don't know how to sew. Mom can't do this for you. He said, dad, I got it figured out. So, so we get this 15 yards. Sure enough, I've just preached this brilliant message last Sunday about people are hope killers. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, he's got the sewing machine out on the dining room table. And... Uh, you know, my son, he's never, he's never seen a needle or a sewing, you know, he doesn't know a bobber from a fishing bobber. So, you know, he, he, is that what it's called, a bobber? Bobbin. Oh, see? He gets his, he gets his sewing expertise from me. So, um, bobbin. Okay, sorry. Um, so anyway, he's, he's, he's got the sewing machine out on the table and, uh, I'm like, you're going to, you're going to sew all this. He has to go back the next, you know, the next day. I said, you're going to sew all this, 
this 10-foot-long, double-stitched, ends, you know. But yeah, I got it. I'm like, and, and so I start, I start in. And Lisa shows him how to, how to sew a stitch about this long on a piece of practice material. And I start in. Bud, I said, let's just go to the Goodwill. I said, this is not going to work. You know, the first time somebody jumps on it, it's going to fall apart. The ends are going to blow out. I am just completely a dream killer in this whole thing. And, and as I'm saying it, my words, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes people are just hope killers. I'm just like, Chris, you are being such a hope killer. And um, so sure enough, he learns how to do it. He stitches that. He cuts it off, stitches that whole thing up, double stitches it, puts the end on the Velcro thing that put the beans in is all in there. He gets, the whole thing is that he got the whole thing done by midnight by himself. He gets the beans on Tuesday. The beans go in. He's going to have a 10-foot long beanbag sofa that's going to be the coolest beanbag sofa you've ever seen. And now I can't wait to go and look at it and sit on and lay on this beanbag sofa. But I was being a hope killer. God, God wants us to be people who are believers. The beautiful thing about Jesus and the hope Jesus gets is, gives is that the hope he gives is not wishful thinking. It's it's not it's not just some oh maybe you know maybe it'll he'll come through or maybe he won't. Jesus always comes through. Now you know hope in in in, in other things. Um, sometimes we say things like well I hope this will happen, which means it might not happen. It might happen. But in Christ, hope is sure. And and we are to be the people who are who are the ones who are are the promoters and the conveyors of that hope. Jesus showed us about hope. All through this, all through the Gospels, and all through the stories, and so we're, we're walking through the Book of Mark, and um, talking about hope, even when the odds are against us. And we talked about that last week, and and, and in chapter two of Mark, Jesus Jesus starts having these conflicts with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And uh, the first one, of course, we talked about last week was with the paralytic, and and then and then he calls a man named Levi. Levi was a, cat, a tax collector. Tax collectors weren't particularly popular back then, and um, and they were they, you know they were avoided because they the people felt like the tax collectors ripped them off. And uh, but Jesus calls Levi and, and and Levi making a very good living, he calls Levi and and Levi begins to follow Levi. Of course, we also know as Matthew. And he calls Matthew and and uh, Matthew begins to follow. And the next thing we we see is that Jesus is at the home of Matthew having dinner with Matthew and his friends. And I think one of the evidences of the grace of our life and of, of the kind of relationships that God wants us to have, we find in Jesus. And, and it's easy for us to, to say, hey, will you come to my turf? Hey, will you come to my house? Hey, will you come to my church? But do we have the kind of grace in our life and do we have the kind of relationships built with people that they're willing to say, hey, I'm comfortable with you coming to my turf? And that's what Jesus, Jesus you know, Matthew and, and his buddies, who were known as tax collectors or tax gatherers and sinners, were comfortable having Jesus with them, and um, and so comfortable that that uh, the, the the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus and saying, "Well, look at him; he's eating with tax collectors and sinners." And Jesus says, "Look at I didn't come to call the righteous; I came to call those who are sick." I came to call those who are sinners, is what he said, actually. And what he's saying by that is, he says, listen, I, I didn't come to, 
to try to help those of you who are self-righteous, who think you don't need anything. I came to help those who, are, who recognize they have need. And uh, he said, those are the people I want to hang out with. Jesus accepts those that religious society throws away. Jesus accepts the people that the religious society avoids. And to Jesus, evangelism wasn't just an event that ended with a prayer. To Jesus, evangelism was a relationship with you and I. To Jesus, evangelism was an ongoing communication with people he calls sinners. That's, that's what Jesus was about. And uh, it's no surprise, it was no surprise to the Jews that God saved sinners. But what was a surprise to the, to, to, the, to the religious world of that day, the Jewish world, particularly the religious leaders, it was a shock to them that God loves and saves them as sinners. He just he says, okay, you're sinners, okay, I embrace you, I love you. The next conflict Jesus has with the Pharisees is that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, his followers, were not fasting. And and the Pharisees had sort of this scale, you know, of right of righteousness. So so you you got you got ten to one and ten being really righteous and one being not very righteous. And so the Pharisees thought, well, we fast twice a day, we'd follow all these regulations and rules, we try to you know, we go to church all the time and we do all the right things and and so they felt like they were high on the righteousness scale. They said to Jesus, listen, even John's disciples are fasting. You know, they're doing the right things. But your disciples don't fast. So from the point of view of the Pharisees, Jesus and his followers were way low on the righteousness scale. And from the perspective of the Pharisees, in order to be acceptable to God, you had to do enough right things to be high on the scale. And Jesus was messing with them. Jesus was messing with their scale. And then Jesus says this cryptic little metaphor and he says, you know, you don't take new wine and pour it into old wineskins because if you do that, you're going to burst the, the old wineskins and you're going to lose both, ruin both the old wineskins and the wine. So he says, you take new wine and you put it into new wineskins. And what he's saying by that is, he's saying, listen, the good news of Jesus or the new wine couldn't be contained in old forms and old traditions. He says, I, I want it, you to begin to see life in the kingdom from a new perspective. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about behavior modification. It's about me accepting you as sinners. It's about accepting the love that I have for you. And Jesus is just messing with their system. The law and, and religion wants to tell us that to be accepted, you have to behave. You have to follow the rules. If you behave, you'll have a right to act accepted like a, like a badge or like a, like a star, like you put on this you know, the vest and you have all of your badges of achievements and accomplishments and you've followed the rules and, and so you can stand proud and, and, and head held high because you can say, look at me, I've done all the right things and now I can be accepted. That's what religion says. That's what, that's what the law says. And if you don't behave or if you don't have the credentials or if you aren't put together, then you can't belong in that system. Jesus came to tweak that system. People who act like they have deserved God's favor, okay? People who act like they've deserved God's favor, they're arrogant, they're self-righteous. Frankly, they're just annoying. Um, they're always eager to display their positions and display their achievements and, and quick to point out everybody else's shortcomings and 
And then there are, on the other side of the story, so you got that self-righteous sort of arrogant, and that's the Pharisees were falling into that, you know. And, and we love to criticize the Pharisees and see it from the point of, point of view of, of the Scripture, but the truth is, too frequently, I am one of those Pharisees. I just, you know, I sometimes just think I'm better than other people. Anybody else ever feel that way? Yeah, I hate to admit that. I do. I hate to admit that. But there, but there are just sometimes I just get self-righteous. Like, oh, look what I... And that's terrible. That just, that just, that just ruins the, the opportunity for God to display His grace and power in my life. But the Pharisees, you know, they get, and, and I can be terribly annoying when I get like that. So anyway, but then on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who believe they don't deserve to be loved. They don't deserve to be accepted. And they sort of stay in the shadows of their undeservedness. And, um, and, and so the, they, they take the, whatever the best is they can get that comes close to some semblance of love. And they just sort of, sort of stay in that place of, of sort of despair and, and, and getting just whatever they can get. But Jesus says, no, listen, that's not how I want you to be. I want you to live as those loved and accepted even while you recognize you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it is true. You, you, know, you can't be the person who says, look at I've done, I've deserved it, so I should be accepted. But also, you can't be a person that just says, I don't deserve it, and just stays there. He says, I want you to live as one who is loved and accepted, even though you realize you don't deserve it. Because when you do that, you live with an air of gratitude. And you live in a, in a dimension of grace that is healthy and that is right. You can live with your head held high. You can live with your chin up because you know God has accepted you. And that's what Jesus was, that's the good news Jesus was trying to bring. And he runs into two more conflicts. And these conflicts remind us of what's important. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23, I want to read that, uh, this conflict, um, this next conflict that Jesus encountered. Mark 2, verse 23 says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, as they're walking through these grain fields, these grain fields aren't theirs. They're just walking through and they're picking heads of grain and they're eating them. Now, the, the thing that was unlawful wasn't that they were stealing grain from somebody else's grain field. That wasn't the unlawful thing. It was acceptable. If somebody's hungry, they could do that in that culture. What was unlawful was that the Pharisees had these 39 categories of rules that you could not break on the Sabbath. So the fact that they were doing it on the Sabbath, they were violating the rules of the Sabbath and they were desecrating in their mind the Sabbath because they said, for example, one of their rules was to pick a heads of grain was reaping and that was work. That to, 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 to smash that grain in your hands was threshing, and that was work. And to prepare it to eat was preparing food, and that was work. So they had all these ridiculous rules, so that they were all bound up in the, in the rules of the Sabbath. And, and uh, so it goes on, and it says, Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar. The high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. He says, listen, you've got to remember the story of David. There's the bread, there's you know, the, 
the, the, the, the special bread that is there in the, in the holy place. And, and it's in two stacks of unleavened bread that represents, you know, the manna that, that God gave. And also represents Jesus as the bread of life. Of course, they didn't know that yet. But anyway, um, he says David, when he was hungry and his companions were hungry, they ate that. They weren't supposed to eat that. That was holy and often only the priests were supposed to eat. But they did because they had a need. And, and, and they had permission because of their need to do that. Sometimes compassion trumps the, uh, the law. So, so he goes on and he says, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's, he's saying this, Listen, remember, God gave this day, this special day of rest to us. It is a gift to us. Yes, the scripture says, the, the commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That word holy means set apart. So you should have a day that is set apart specifically, which means it is different because it is special to the Lord. So, so God established this at the creation. He worked six days and on the seventh day he rested. He, he, he put that into our life and into creation as a rhythm of creation, as a rhythm of life, so that we would have a day where we could reflect, where we could rest, where we could recharge, where we could be re-energized, where we could uh, you know, uh, celebrate with the, with the church family, where we could be rejuvenated for the, for the work ahead. So... The Sabbath day was holy. It, it should be a day where we set it apart. But he says the Sabbath was made for man. It's, it's a day God gave to us, not man for the Sabbath. God, God set it as a pattern. Now we in our culture have decided that the Sabbath is an option. I don't believe it is an option. And I think we still should be those who remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now you might say, well, yeah, but the Sabbath day, that would be the seventh day. That's Saturday. How can we do it on Sunday? Because in the New Testament... Uh, when Jesus died, he rose again on the first day. The, the observance of the Lord's day, which it was called, began to be observed normally on that first day of the week where they started together in celebration of the life of the resurrection, life we have. So the specific day, Paul talks about the specific day and, and, and that stuff is not as, as critical as that you have, you live within the rhythms of life that God has given you. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, I'm doing away with the Sabbath. Jesus isn't saying, oh, the Sabbath doesn't matter to me. We're just going to do, we're just going to walk through the fields and pick whatever we want. We're going to do whatever we want because the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, the Sabbath, it, it does matter. But remember what the Sabbath is for. It's not a straitjacket. For the Pharisees, uh, the, the, the form had superseded the function. The rules had become the focus rather than the purpose of it. He gave the Sabbath to us not because he needed it, because he knew we needed that in the rhythm of our life. So, so he's saying, listen, don't treat the Lord's Day as a restrictive duty or as some obligation to be met. Treat this opportunity as a gift celebrate it. but for the pharisees it had become something that they were so afraid to do anything that it was just this restrictive bondage they were living in and jesus is saying listen use this as the gift that i have given it to you for and then just for fun jesus says the son of man is lord even of the sabbath he says that to the pharisees and uh what he's saying is this listen Guys, listen, Pharisees, you guys have your rules, but I own the Sabbath. I'm the one who determines, really, what the Sabbath is all about. He was asserting his authority, and this really 
bugged the, the Pharisees. It made them mad because to this point, by virtue of their position, by virtue of their education, they were the authority on the Sabbath. And to them, Jesus is usurping their authority, undercutting them. So they're getting more and more frustrated as his disciples are doing things that they, he, they didn't think they should be doing. We pick it up in chapter 3 and verse 1, and it says, Another time he went into the synagogue. That's the meeting place or the gathering place for the, for the followers of God. And it says, And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Most people think that was paralysis. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See, stubborn hearts distort our perspective the, the pharisees had gotten just um, completely bound up with their personal agenda and when our personal agenda consumes us we lose our compassion for people this is what had happened to the pharisees here's a man who had a what what the, what the niv calls a shriveled hand um his, church historians back all the way back to like the fourth century um, they 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 believe that, that they know the name of this man and that he was a bricklayer, and that that he had uh, the 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 outside history says that he had gone there and 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 uh, he had asked Jesus to heal his hands so that instead of begging he could lay bricks again. So here's this man with a very legitimate need, but um, sometimes when when our hearts are stubborn. We, we can't see the need right in front of us. This last week, there was a tragedy. I don't know if you heard about it, but there was a 14-year-old that fell from a bridge in Linwood, uh, overpass over the freeway, fell onto the freeway and was killed. They don't know how, how, what the reason, the cause of the fall. I don't think they know or they haven't shared it. I haven't heard it. And it stopped traffic for like several hours. And there was a, you know, a huge backup on the northbound freeway, and I thought, and this, but this 14-year-old boy has, has been killed. And I, and I heard people call in, and they were just mad. They were just mad that this happened because it was really messing up there. They can't get to where they... And I, and I was thinking, and I understand, you know, when you're sitting in the traffic and you need to be somewhere and you can't get through because traffic is just at a standstill, I understand the frustration of that. But sometimes when our personal agenda consumes us, we lose sight of compassion. Somebody had lost their life and somebody had lost their child. See, these Pharisees knew that Jesus could heal. It says that, it says that so they, they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. They'd watched Jesus heal other people. They'd seen him miraculously touch other people and, and see them raise up. So they knew Jesus could heal this man, but that didn't matter to them. They knew this man was in need. It was very obvious. It was right in front of them, but that didn't matter to them. The thing that mattered to the Pharisees was their preferred protocol. Here, it was, here's how we want it to go and here's how it's supposed to go and this is, this is our preference so you've got to do it our way. Their prideful piety. I'm going to use lots of P's today. I don't know why. It just felt like a P day. Uh, their, their prideful piety and, uh, and then their positional power. That's what mattered to these guys. 
Um, that's what they cared about. That's what mattered to them, was them. It was really, it had become about them. What do they want? You know, what control can they continue to wield? It was more important for them to keep their own agenda, do things their way, and that they assert control than it was to try to help a general need. In fact, when Jesus asked them, when Jesus said, you know, which is better, to save a life or to kill it on the Sabbath, they didn't even answer. They didn't want to give him the benefit of answering the question because they knew the right answer, but they didn't care about the right answer. All they cared about is what they wanted. That's a... That's a distorted perspective. One of the reasons that I love Pastor Gene is because when, you know, <clears throat> we talk about what happens. You know, here's, here's a guy uh, in, in this story whose hand is paralyzed and he needs to be healed. And these Pharisees, because they wanted things their own way, they didn't care whether he was going to get healed or not. So while we had a guy with a paralyzed hand, what we had really with the Pharisees was a paralyzed heart. These guys' hearts were just frozen cold. One of the things I loved about Pastor Gene, and, and one, of the, one of the many reasons I respected him is because of this. He, he'd pastored churches for decades. Um, he knew how to lead. And, and I'm sure he had a preferred way of doing things. In fact, I know he did. He was pretty particular. He was meticulous. Um, he was a planner and had things organized just so. He had experience. He had, you know, years of wisdom. He led in, in his generation and, and in a time when out of respect, you dressed up for church. You wore a tie. Um, you, you didn't wear blue jeans why I wore black jeans today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Patent leather shoes and hat and gloves. Uh, but you, you certainly wouldn't wear shorts to church. And, and to wear a backwards baseball cap, you wouldn't think of that. Right? But, you know, the music... The music in the church, in our church, was not the music that Gene picked out. It wasn't the style that he would have chosen. But Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, he came. And um, not scowling, not pointing out how he would do it different, not pointing out the flaws, not with crossed arms, with an attitude of resistance, but he came, and he smiled, and he entered in. And um, he loved to see the young people in the church. And he didn't let how they looked or dressed or how much noise they made, uh, at least to me, supersede his delight in the fact that those kids were there. And even though he'd preached it all, and even though he'd read it all, and even though he'd heard it all before, he would sit there in his chair with a pencil in hand, and he would take notes on my lame sermons because he always because he always believed there was something new to learn he never got to the place where he said oh I've done that I've been there I know that you know look at my credentials you look at me I deserve to be the authority he that just wasn't him 
Um, he would encourage me after service, and he'd, he'd come up to me and he'd say things like, "You know, I've never, I've never looked at it that way before." And I'd thank him, and I'd walk out, and I'd think, "He probably preached it like that before." <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, he would adapt to, and he would defend strategies that he wouldn't have chosen because he believed the mission and the relationships of the church were more important than his personal preference. He, he had it figured out. Um, he was what we called a few months ago a huyas. What scripture calls a mature son. He knew who he was and he knew that, he, that, that God could continue to still work in him. And um, he's received his inheritance. He would, he would, I remember sitting in a staff meeting with him when he was on staff with us. Um, he would uh, tell me that they were going to have a prime timers gathering. And our prime timers were those who were 50 or so or older. And he'd have, he'd have a prime timers gathering. He said, we're going to sing some choruses. He said, I know that they might want to sing all hymns. But he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sing some of the choruses because that's some of the songs we sing here. And I, and I would hear him say that and I would think, and here's a guy Here's a guy who's putting aside personal preference for the sake of the mission. Because it was bigger to him than that. He was about the bigger picture. He was about the mission. He loved God and he loved people. That's what mattered to him. The Pharisees had gotten so set in their ways and so paralyzed in their perspective, they refused to acknowledge that healing someone was even a good thing. And if we get so set in our ways that we no longer have compassion, that we no longer want God's best for somebody, that we no longer see the need that's right in front of us, that we're unwilling to allow Jesus to interrupt our agenda, or that we no longer see the need for a community or for a lost or a hurting person, our heart has become hardened and we're in a dangerous spot. It can happen in our marriages. It can happen with our kids. You ever get stubborn? I knew you never do. The rest of you, anybody ever get stubborn? Any, did, would anybody say that the person next to you ever gets stubborn? Okay. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we uh, we can get we can get so stubborn, and and here's what can happen: I can get stubborn. You know, I I. Um, I can get stubborn with my wife. And the reason my wife isn't here, I, I meant to mention this earlier, my wife and the, some of the ladies' ministry team is away for the weekend in a planning retreat, so that's why she's not here. So they'll be back later today. But anyway, I can get so stubborn in my marriage and that I can, be, I can be so convinced in my own mind that I'm right that I'm just going to be determined that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my ground. And we're going to do it this way because this is the right way or I'm right in this and... I don't care. And, and, and she can be just dissolving in a puddle before me. Sometimes I can be so stubborn that I'm so determined to win that I lose seeing her heart. And, and we've got to be careful. Uh, we can be so insistent that we're right or that they do things a certain way or that we maintain control, that we refuse to listen and we refuse to see the very real need right in front of us. You know, a child comes home. And after a really, really bad day at school, he throws his shoes on the floor and he throws his coat on the floor and he escapes up to his room and he closes the door. 
And, and I understand this. I get this. But we can, we can walk over and see the coat on the floor and the shoes on the floor and we can think, that, this is so disrespectful. How many times have I had to tell you to quit leaving your stuff? You just don't respect us. You just don't respect our rules. And oh, well, it, what's happened is the kids just had a terrible day. Now, is that an excuse? Maybe not. But maybe what should come through our mind and heart at least is, I wonder if he's okay. You know, I wonder if he's okay. That stuff, we can deal with that. But sometimes we get so focused on obeying the rules, on doing everything right, and doing it our way, and making sure it's good for us, that we lose sight of the compassion that we're supposed to have for the person, the need that's right in front of us. You know what mattered to Jesus? People. That's it. I wish I could say something more profound with more peace. But um, but what mattered to Jesus was you and me. Us with our shriveled hands and our broken hearts and our sinful ways and screwed up ideas and <laughs> selfish motives. That's what matters to Jesus. He just, he just cares about you and I. He walked into the synagogue. All the Pharisees could see is what, what was going to go wrong there. All Jesus could see is, here's a guy who needs to be healed. And I love this guy. And you know what happened at the end of that? Jesus healed that guy's hand. Because he loves people. He's our hope giver. We're supposed to reflect Him. Our job is to be, is to be reflections of the way He responded. So let's remember when we come into this place what matters to Jesus. And that is people in very real need. He came to give them hope. He came to give you and I hope and life. Let's be life givers. Right? Let's be hope givers. Let's love one another. Let's put aside personal preference and protocol. Preferred, whatever those P's were. Let's put aside our pride. You know, let's, let's, let's say, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I help accomplish the mission of God to touch people in real need in this community? Because that's what mattered to Jesus. I'm going to close with a song. Um, it's actually a song that uh, that I know, a chorus that I know that uh, Pastor Gene really loved. And I think it just expresses God's love for people. And as we sing it, I want you to just think about um, about where your heart's at when you walk into a place or when you're going about your life. What... Uh, What's the perspective you have? Are you, do, you, do you get stubborn in your own ways and wanting things your own ways? Or are you, are you looking at hearts and lives and people with compassion? So, um, I'm forgiven.
those in this room today who um, Lord who are hurting um, who have real need that um, they would find life and hope in you and I pray for us who are a part of this particular church that we would be people who are able to move past our own personal preferences and, uh, and see people through the eyes of Jesus. And Lord, that when we see someone with uh, some, something that is holding them back from the life you have. Lord, when we see someone who is hurting from a busted relationship or uh, grieving for some loss or is, um, Lord, uh, afraid because of a difficult situation that they're encountering in their life. Lord, I pray we would Um, not just be worried about our own agenda but that we'd stop that agenda to love those folks and and just express the love of Christ to them help us be that kind of a hope giving people Lord we thank you that you are that hope giving Savior and Lord Lord I pray now as as we close up this service and we give in this offering first of all God I'm just I'm just grateful for this church family I'm grateful for the generosity that is here. I'm grateful for uh, people with a kingdom mentality and uh, who have shown by just their actions, even in giving, that uh, they put aside themselves for your purposes. So, Lord, I pray you'd bless them. And, Lord, I pray you'd use this giving that we give now for your purposes that would go above and beyond what we can even imagine. Thank you for that, God. We love you so much. Uh, we bless you. We thank you that we can walk out of here with our head held high, uh, Lord, in confidence because we are accepted by you. In Jesus' name.